Coming up on this week's show, it's our 200th episode, and we're joined by the man behind Black Mirror, Bandersnatch, Gameswipe, and how video games change the world, Charlie Brooker. This week's show is brought to you by Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. And get started shaving with Harry's today. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast episode number 200. Can you believe it, lads? We made it, episode 200 of the Retro Hour podcast. Of course, I needed my sound effects. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. You, you use all it your sound effects. It would be the Retro Hour with Dan's classic sound effects. Oh, Living the app for Joe, your, your sparkly jacket you got on today. <laughs> Just for this monumental occasion. My sparkly occasion. gloves, my monocle, my top hat. I can't believe that we have episodes of the podcast now that are going to start with the number two. Jesus. Fireworks, yeah. Pretty hell, that scared me. <laughs> now, in all seriousness, let's give a huge thank you to everyone who has allowed us to do it for this long. 200 episodes, 200 weeks of coming in here, hanging out together, chatting about our favourite hobby in the world. Some of the, you know, the thing we're most passionate about in life. And I never thought that we'd make it to this point, if I'm honest, we'd be here know, like it's all this time. crazy. Later. I still think of like, I think it was episode eight, the first episode I was ever on, yeah. walking down to the studio thinking, oh my gosh, what is this that I'm getting involved in? And here we are. And you know what? Without the listeners, we'd have yeah. nothing. Like, if nobody was listening... <laughs> Yeah, wouldn't be yeah. much point in doing it, would yeah. there? <laughs> now, we just wanted to take this opportunity at the start of the show, I mean, to give a big thank you to everyone who's allowed us to get to this point. I mean, anyone that's made a donation into the Hall of Fame over the last, like, four or five years, or however long we've been doing this now, every guest that we've had on the podcast. Oh, yeah, some nights we've been waiting nervously oh, yeah. with the podcast about to go out the next day, <laughs> about four people on hold, like, come on, but we've managed to do it every week. It's crazy. It and- is crazy. And I just want to say as well, I don't think you two boys get enough recognition for the hard work you've put in this. I want to say thank you to Ravi for getting the guests for the last 200 yep, weeks. Absolutely. And I want to say thank you for Dan for just being a sick presenter and just editing this every week and getting it out there on, fri- on a Friday yeah, night. You know, Dan edits it and he puts it out and it pumps out onto the things and kind of, I'm like a listener now, I expect it, you know? Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. just... To that high quality. It's oh, if it's really late, I get bollocked off, Ravi. And thank you, Joe, as well, for not only providing the handsomeness, but oh, also, you know, so when we started the show, Ravi and I, obviously computer fanboys, but, you know, you've really brought in a whole new, like, edge to the show, I think, with, you know, your, your console fandom. And I think we've got a really good show going these days and the fact that we can appeal to all aspects of retro gaming. Yeah, and, you know, we were going down that kind of really computery, yeah. <laughs> nerdy route and then Joe came in and said, wait a minute, there's a whole thing, Sega and Nintendo yo, Where's all the Sega stuff going? (laughs) And and, and he he bought the Rockstar appeal as well, which we have. Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, you've come to any of the Retro Live events. I mean, we do so many of those these days as well. Um, It's all massively appreciated. So here we are into the 200s now doing this podcast. And what a way to celebrate. Now, we did tease a rather big guest that was coming up on this week's show. And I'm sure everyone's read the show title by now. We're joined by Charlie Brooker. (laughs) This is absolutely amazing. Um, I tweeted Charlie a while ago yeah. and then I'd heard a Radio 4 interview where he was talking about you know listening to retro gaming podcasts when he went to sleep and yeah. I was like okay let's try and tweet him again <laughs> and then uh, he came on so it's just absolutely I fantastic f- and he's a listener I know yeah. and what I thought was really funny was he came on you know, we did it a couple of weeks ago now. And straight away, it was like, oh, yeah, Ravi, you tweeted me around about episode 50, didn't you? And it was just crazy that it was like, actually, yes, he ignored it. He's a very, very busy man. <laughs> um, but 
I couldn't believe it. He was just like, not only is he on now, but like he did actually, he's been aware of the show for the last, you know, three years as yeah. well, which is absolutely fantastic. And talking about the stuff he's done, I mean, Games Wipe, I love screen wiping at the end of every year. That was a tradition, how video games changed the world. He is a massive video games fan and he's kind of opened the door to us. Of You know, we talk about in the interview that's coming up in a moment about how many other kind of celebrities are actually into gaming, kind of mm. like closet gamers almost. Yeah, and they seem yeah. to be like, you know, coming out the door a bit well, now. Well, we've talked cool. so many times on the show about how hard it is to get anything commissioned yeah. about video games on TV and a lot of times they saw it as a rival and stuff but Charlie Brooke has probably got the most video game shows commissioned which is a really good achievement you know mm. and he even did his dissertation on video games so it's going to be a great interview <laughs> and of course we need to talk about Black Mirror right, now yeah. I think it's fair to say our favourite TV show, um, what Netflix show, you'd call it these days, of the last year, Bandersnatch, when that came out last yeah, Christmas. How many yeah. times did we play that through? <laughs> I probably sat at it for about four hours. Yeah. Um, the first half an hour failing because I kept on saying, no, I didn't want to work there, thinking, <laughs> I, I'm sure I can get round this somehow. <laughs> so, yeah. So we are going to chat about Black Mirror and uh, find out maybe if there's any future, maybe a Bandersnatch too. The thing is, Charlie's such a big guest. There's going to be no news this week. We're literally going to get straight into the interview in a moment. Yeah. We'll be back to normal next yeah. Yep. week but then we'll be doing our kind of Christmas schedule so we'll have yep. the Christmas, Christmas quiz countdown will begin we'll and then our, our New Year's kind of <laughs> reflection show as well where we look back at the year and mm. the guests now before we get into our chat with Charlie Brooker let's give a huge thank you to a company who've enabled us to keep the Retro Hour podcast going and it's always amazing when we get sponsors who we're massive fans of as well and this is our good mates at Retro Gamer Magazine now they are the only magazine dedicated every month to bringing you all aspects of retro gaming, giving you exclusive access to developers, the people behind your favourite games, teaching you things that you didn't know about these games that you grew up playing. And that is always something that blows my mind when you hear, you know, these interviews with these developers and these key people. And you often get those little, like, lists down the side of the bullet mm. points, and you're like, I didn't know that about that game. Their research is impeccable. Yeah, the amount of effort that goes into this, you know, we struggle every single week sometimes yeah. to get a guest on. But these guys, the information they're churning out and the people they're in interviewing and the information that they're just kind of digging up from the past from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and even the 60s in this month's issue as well is just incredible. Now we're celebrating our 200th episode but also quite coincidentally Retro Gamer have got their 200th issue yeah. in stores right now as well so we'd like you to get involved in this. Now think of this as a little early Christmas present from us to you. What about getting a six month subscription to the incredible Retro Gamer magazine for only £25 you're getting a pretty big saving there as well but also will include a beautifully retro-styled Bluetooth controller from the incredible 8BitDo, which is normally retails at £30. So essentially you get a retro gamer for 25 quid and you're getting a 30 quid controller. For free, yeah, pretty exactly. much. The controller is just like the added bonus. You've exactly. Got, and you've already got good quality controllers. Yeah, absolutely. So you get your six-month subscription, £25, cheaper than it is in the newsagents for six months worth, and you're getting the controller on top of that. And it works on Mac, PC, Linux, and then also what I love is it works on Switch as well. Yeah, if you're playing your old school games, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. there's so many of them on there. And there's different styles to pick from, NES controller style, GameCube, Mega Drive, Game Boy editions too. So you need to claim this right now, because we get so many people after it's finished going, oh, I missed out on that. So listen, do this. Open a new tab in your browser, type this in, myfavoritemagazines.co.uk forward slash retro 8-bit dough. So that's retro number 8 B I T D O, my favorite magazines.co.uk forward slash retro 8 bit dough with Retro Gamer Magazine, the essential guide to classic games. 
Now, just before we get into our chat with Charlie Brooker, let's give another huge thank you to the people who made the Hall of Fame this week. And, you know, these are people who, who listen to the Retro Hour podcast, who enjoy what we do, and throw a couple of quid into the tip jar, and let us pay for stuff like our hosting, our website, our subscription services, all that kind of thing. They've kept us chugging along, you know. Yeah. We've done 200 episodes, and I don't know if I can afford bus fare sometimes. <laughs> so this is really good to have kind of support from the listeners. Let's Ravi get into the studio to do the show. So this week we want to give a huge thank you on episode 200's Hall of Fame, Gareth Hammer, Daniel James, Roy Gelotti, and Michael Roach, who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, you can find all the information you need, the supporters link on our website, and also maybe get yourself some uh, pretty nice retro merchandise as well, nice hoodie, a t-shirt, and more. Oh, yeah. You can get all that on our website, everything you need to know at theretrohour.com. Well, listen, thank you so much for being there for 200 episodes. Right now, a real treat. Let's get him on, the legendary Charlie Brooker. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and of course, to celebrate a monumental occasion, our 200th episode of the show, we had to get someone pretty special to join us on the podcast this week. And we're going to have such an interesting conversation for the next hour or so. Let's welcome to the Retro Hour, Charlie Brooker. Hello, congratulations. And a 200 episodes. 200. That is cool. We appreciate you joining us to celebrate this week then, Charlie. That's all right. And we haven't killed each other after 200, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) Save that for the 100. (laughs) Just don't have the the, the correct, the the, the requisite upper body strength. (laughs) (laughs) Or weapons. (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, Charlie, I mean, a lot of people know that you're you're a very avid gamer. I mean, let's kind of get back to your, you know, early days of of Mm -hmm. video games. What kind of first got you into games? I think my first memory of um, video games was we used to go swimming uh, every week uh, or so, my family, when I was a kid. And I must have been about seven, eight years old, something like that. I was born in 1971, like millions of years ago. And, um, and, and the, sw- the local swimming pool, suddenly one week, there were these arcade machines there. I think they had like Breakout space and Space Invaders and Atari Circus, I seem to remember at one point. And um, I remember being just fascinated by the fact that you could, it was a TV that you could control basically struck me as astonishing. And and then, so, and I, I was just fascinated by them. And I used to go over and if I couldn't, if my parents wouldn't lend me like 10p to, to play on them. I mean, how tight-fisted is that? <laughs> um, sometimes I would, I would go over and press the buttons, you know, where the attract mode is going, the demo mode is going, and I'd sort of convince myself that I was actually playing. I think we all did that. <laughs> I know it's sort of desperate, isn't it? Um, and um, and so and then from that point on, we never had. There were some people who had like one of those old sort of binatone, you know, early consoles that you'd plug into a TV. We never had anything like that. But then at a village fate, and it must have been about 1981. I remember there was a ZX80 on a sort of white elephant stall, and I managed to persuade my dad to lend me like a couple of weeks' pocket money. I remember. It was five pounds, and I bought, I bought it and brought it home, and that was my first computer. It was a Sinclair ZX80, which couldn't do anything. And uh, I seem to remember there was one game in the manual that you typed in. It was called something like Nibbler, and uh, all it was was it would create a sort of grey block of cheese on the screen, and you'd press a button, and every time you press the button, a bit of the block would disappear. 
And that was it. <laughs> a cheese grating simulator, then? <laughs> Not even that interesting. At least with a cheese grating simulator, you'd have the, the jeopardy of wondering whether you were going to skim your knuckles or something. But no, this was just, it just made blocks disappear. And then I got a Spectrum. And then from that point on, I was, I was uh, hooked. So the Spectrum was my very first proper games computer. Was that kind of your saviour? Because you said that you lived in a village as well, so I guess you <laughs> didn't experience much of big arcades and stuff like there that. There weren't many... Yes, there weren't many... Like, I can sort of remember exactly where I saw any arcade machine that I... Like, I remember seeing, very clearly, seeing Pac-Man on a ferry, <laughs> like on a school trip to France. That's I associate Pac-Man with a C-Link ferry. Um, and um, and there was a, there was a travelling fair that would come round to the... Uh, the nearby sort of market town every uh, couple of times a year, I guess. And you'd sort of see arcade games there. I remember seeing like the Star Wars arcade game and Outrun and Track and Field and sort of games like that you'd sometimes see in the arcade. But most of the time, my primary point of contact for any games like that would be the Spectrum version of, you know, Vigilante or something, Um, or a sort of, Something like 3D Star Strike, which I think was the, the the Spectrum equivalent of the Star Wars arcade cabinet, back when things could be sort of actionably similar without <laughs> lawyers suing them, I guess, because they didn't really know what computer games were. Yes, yeah, so I used to I used to play a lot of sort of games, and I remember trying to write it. No, I didn't. Try, I tried to do the graphics for a game once. Oh wow! Because like I was I was interested in drawing comic strips, and my my now brother-in-law who was then, I think, just my sister's boyfriend, decided he wanted to create a game and and sort of roped me in to do the graphics. And I sort of, you know, had like one of those 8 by 8 grid sketch pads. Can you still get those? <laughs> I haven't had one for <laughs> a while. You used to be able to buy them in like WH Smith or something. Like, And uh, yeah, I remember doing the, trying to do these little 8-bit graphics. I mean, they were terrible. It was a stupid idea because it was a platform game about a horse. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, it, and horses are really hard to animate. Yeah, you didn't pick an easy one there. No. <laughs> so, obviously, you've got a lot of affection for the uh, ZX Spectrum. Uh, what was Not so... really. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yes. Yes and no. Okay. I've got affection for it in my memories, but when you go back and emulate any of the games, they're sort of unplayable. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I don't think I was actually ever very good at any of the games at all. Like Manic Miner, I think I probably never got beyond sort of screen four but i just liked i liked the idea of the games more than the experience of playing them if that makes sense i think you know when you go back and revisit those old games you forget how difficult they were because i mean they're quite short games and they didn't hold your hand i mean a lot of them you'd have to do the entire game with like two or three lives well and i guess because a lot of them because they were taking their lead as well from arcade games and arcade games had a, a vested interest in having an extreme difficulty curve so yeah, they were brutal, and I guess I guess because they were so short mm. as well. Yeah, you're right. They'd be over in in less time than it took to load, wouldn't they? If they weren't just impossibly difficult. I think Elite was probably the first game I remember playing, like really, really, really getting sort of submerged in the world of it because it was it felt like an alien artifact from uh, the future. It was it was so advanced. But that was the Spectrum version of Elite, which came with a terrible copy protection device you had to put over the screen called a lens lock yes <laughs> oh god awful it looked like a bit of shattered glass or something like that and it would it, it was a bit like one of those capture 
things, actually. It's a bit like when you have to like enter a capture um, code on a website to prove that you're a human being. Um, but you, you, it would, so the screen would display this like scrambled, garbled sort of bit of nonsense. And if you held this, if you had the lens lock, which you couldn't just copy onto a tape, obviously, because it was a phys physical object, object, you could peer through it and see a code which you'd then type in, and then it would grant you access to the game. And I remember being really outraged at the appearance of the lens lock, although it was sort of fair enough, because I think probably 90% of the games I'd played up until then had just been given to me on a C90 cassette in a playground. That's one thing, yeah. though, that those that pirated the game didn't have to go through all the hassle of stuff like that, so they punished the yeah. playing customers. It's really odd. Yeah, I know. it was. But then, on the other hand, what else were they going to do? It was like, <laughs> There were lots of... I remember copying out... I think, was it Jet Set Willy or something like that? There was some game that had a a good chart with about sort of, you know, 256 different coloured squares on it. And you had to sort of, it would say like, enter the colour on square B4. Um, and I think this was before colour photocopiers. And I remember sort of copying it out and laboriously colouring all, all the squares with a felt pen, which probably took longer than the game itself. Again, and again, and I've just admitted that I wasn't very good at these games and didn't play them for very long. So I don't know why. I spent so long <laughs> bothering. It's a bit, but I think today I sort of spend quite a lot of time emulating things and trying to get emulators working. And I, I, I think, and I spend a lot more time doing that, I think, than I do actually playing any of the games. You know, it's like um, I've realised I'm kind, I'm the exactly the same as a middle-aged man with a with a model railway in his loft <laughs> who does who spends more time sort of pruning the little trees and <laughs> making uniforms. For, for the people on the platform than I do actually making the trains go round. You uh, studied a BA course as well in media studies. and um, I did. You I did. wrote a, uh, a piece on uh, video games, which was not an acceptable topic. Do you it think if you submitted mm. it today, it would pass? Yes and no, in that it would definitely be an admissible topic today. However, whether what I wrote would pass, I don't know. I seem to remember that I spent most of it yammering on about road rash. <laughs> <laughs> that was <laughs> a great game. Right? Um, I can't really remember what the... Th it was 25,000 words, which at the time struck me as a, a human achievement on a par with building the pyramids. But, yeah, I hadn't checked with anyone whether that was an acceptable topic. And, I mean, that dates it for you. So it was in the days of the Mega Drive. It was sort of, you know... Uh, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog Road Rash 1 era we're talking about. I'm pro I probably mentioned Toe Jam and Earl in there as well. Probably squeezed 3,000 words out of Toe Jam and Earl. <laughs> um, and, uh, the, yeah, they just they didn't, they didn't give me a failing mark so much as just <laughs> refused to look at it. And, yes, I do think now they definitely... I'm sure you, I, I would imagine at the same place you can probably do a course. You can probably do a course in Mega Drive games... <laughs> Now, um, I was ahead of my time. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier on that uh, you worked at CEX. Could you mm. tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, um, well, I was sort of one of the founders, co-founders of CEX. So, okay. like, I've had a lot of different jobs. Uh, so I was working as a car... My first job was actually as a cartoonist for a kid's comic called Oink in the 90s, in the 80s, sorry, late 80s. And it was a bit like a sort of kid's version of Viz, 
and it had uh, there was some crossover in the in artists and and people like that. It was run by these people in Manchester who I, who I never met, but I was so I was I wanted to be a cartoonist, but I'd failed my degree. <laughs> And I didn't know what I was going to do. Oink had folded. I didn't have any work coming in. Uh, and I went and got a job. The only thing, the only two things I knew about were comics and computer games. And I went to get a job at Music and Video Exchange in Notting Hill Gate, which I think is now much smaller than it used to be uh, then. But then it was this whole empire of sort of secondhand shops. Mm. Um, and I applied for a job in the comics department and didn't get it and ended up working in the games department and that was actually the first time I ever came into contact with like a Nintendo like the NES and stuff like that because I'd never had any of that stuff growing up and some of the people who working who were working there left to uh, form the computer exchange as it was then called and I went with them a because I knew about computer games and b the idea was that I'd do adverts so I used to draw comic strip adverts for computer exchange which would appear in like computer vi and video games and edge later on and in fact we got in trouble for one that we did in edge i'll tell you about that in a minute um and so my duties consisted of doing the adverts helping work out the value of the games and working behind the counter and chain smoking um that was about it really and that was it was called computer exchange then wasn't yeah. it and yeah and so I did the logo for CEX. Wow. Like that used to be like, like so, because that's a shortened version of the Computer Exchange logo. Um, and I think you could still see the sort of wooden, there was this character, I did this like here's Toby character for, for the comic strip adverts. And there were, I think some, I think they still use some of that stuff in some of their branding. <laughs> I think. I don't know. I went into one the other day. I went into one a few weeks ago in Edinburgh uh, with my kids who were uh, staring at stuff. And I was trying to, I was boring them with like telling them how, I, and it, it did seem the same. Like it had a metal floor, I assume. <laughs> I think. It felt very much like part of the CEX family. I love the way you call it CEX as well, because they're trying to rebrand it as sex recently. And that, that yeah, just, no one's making that, are that they? Surely wrong. not. <laughs> I just always called it CEX. Well, it's <laughs> different for computer exchange, like you said, so sex doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah, doesn't make sense. Yeah, doesn't they, make sense. They have the Wi-Fi. I think the Wi-Fi's called free sex when you walk in. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> You've been in there a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so did you kind of watch a lot of gaming TV? And were you a fan of teletext at all? Because I noticed you were the... Uh, producer for Mr. Biffo's found footage. Oh, well, no, I was one of many in that I, because I, I contributed to the Kickstarter. Ah, yeah. So I think I'd contributed enough to then count as a producer, if you see what I mean, but I didn't have any input <laughs> beyond some money. Um, I used to, I, I was never really that into things like Games Master when I was younger, because I didn't, I was not really into the competitive side of it, if you see, if you see what I mean. Like the, the notion of there being a high score table, and I wasn't very good at games like at street, street Fighter and stuff like that. Bomberman, I was brilliant at Bomberman I, uh, and uh, Puzzle Bobble. I could, and Tekken, actually. I was bloody good at Tekken. But so because I wasn't, most shows seemed to be aimed at also, because I'm so hideously old, most shows were aimed at people a bit younger than me, and there was a heavy focus on getting the highest score 
and, 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 and beating people. And that didn't quite appeal to me. When I was young enough to really want to watch the first TV programs I watched about games, it was like Micro Live, like the BBC thing. If you watch it now, it's like a looks like something from the Second World War. <laughs> um, and they sort of violently disapprove of any games. I do remember the time they got hacked, though. That was hilarious. They got hacked on a line. Yes, they did a... Although I'm sure that was a scam. I'm sure they knew that was going to happen. That's a bit convenient, don't you think? <laughs> Perfect they just time. happen to do a live thing and it just happens to have a live hacking thing. I bet you there's a, uh, I bet you it was all a fit up. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you end up writing for PC Zone magazine? Um, uh, what did ah, you think well, of 90s video game magazine culture? That, well, so I, because I did the comic strips for Computer Exchange, um, one day one of the, writers for PC Zone came in to the shop because uh, they were based around the corner. They were based um, on, I think, Bolsover Street, Dennis Publishing, PC Zone. And they, one of them came in and said, um, the editor has seen these cartoons and wonders if you'd be interested in doing a comic strip for us. So I went and met a bunch of them. Amongst them was David McCandless, who was, uh, there was David McCandless, Patrick McCarthy, Duncan McDonald. Paul Presley, quite a few sort of, and and the editor at the time was, this was before John Davison, it was Paul Lakin. And I was sort of, I was drawing comic strips and then they didn't seem to be running them. <laughs> and one day David McCandless said to me, why don't you, why don't you try writing a review? And I stupidly, I was like, I thought, am I allowed to do that? Do, don't you need a qualification? <laughs> or something like that. I thought you sort of needed a certificate to to write video game reviews. And they they tried me out. And I think the first thing, my memory is that the first review I got published, I might be wrong, but I think it was Fallout, like the original Fallout. Well, yeah. That was certainly one of the very earliest ones. And I seem to remember trying to be really earnest, like making some jokes, but trying to be really earnest at the end and going, oh, let's hope nuclear war never happens. <laughs> it would be... You know, it's a chilling warning, a uh, plea for peace. Uh, um, and, uh, yeah, and then that became my primary source of income from that point on. I sort of did more and more of it until I went freelance and, and just became a video games reviewer. And then I was doing comic strips for PC Zone as well. And it was interesting in that it was, it was an odd time. And PC Zone was, in, was a very unusual magazine to work for because it they would encourage you to basically write humorous pieces. And it was very, very good practice for writing. Well, I mean, incidentally, what I wanted to be doing the whole time was writing comedy. That was another thing I'd wanted to get into, was writing sort of TV comedy. But because you find yourself writing like five pages about, you know, something quite abstract, really. A, a video game is quite abstract. And at that time, obviously, games were slightly simpler and there weren't... There wasn't much emphasis on the personalities who were creating games. So you had acres of paper to fill and you could get quite abstract and bizarre and they would encourage you to just write nonsense. <laughs> so so it was it was very good it was a very good training ground for for writing and sort of writing humorously in general, I think. I don't think I was a very good reviewer because I would quite often either get completely and utterly over enthusiastic about things or I would be really unpleasant 
about them. Um, and there wasn't much middle ground. Well, those magazines were kind of edgy back then, that, that kind of magazine culture. and uh... Edgy is one way of putting it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there, was a, there was a... Like, you look at it now, and it's interesting because there's a lot of... It's very... You can see the influence of magazines like Loaded that were coming around at the time. It was certainly in the sort of later 90s. I remember a new, like, new, a new editor came in and suddenly you could swear <laughs> in the magazine. And it all went a bit sort of like... Um, and there'd be adverts for, you know, there'd be adverts for like a... There was a point in the 90s when every advert for a game would be... It would be sort of like a topless nun holding a joystick. Mm. <laughs> or it was things like that. What was it? You know, um, John Romero's going to make you his bitch. Yeah, yeah. that was it. Yeah. There was all that edgy, edgelord advertising. The attitude. So everything had attitudes, mm. didn't it? Um, so there was quite a lot of that. I think that... In my memory is that PC Zone was always quite sardonic but I, I think it was you could also see the influence of actually like you know it was things like viz as well were sort of playing into um all of that was we were slavishly copying lots of things well you even managed to get an issue pulled off the shelf for um, <laughs> a helmet well, worseless cruelty show could you uh, tell well, us a story behind a, that it was so i used to do a monthly uh, cartoon page and where I would just breach copyright left, right, and centre without <laughs> thinking about it. Like, I'd just scan. I'd just got a scanner and Photoshop. I'd just started doing comic strips on a computer. And uh, one month, I decided to do this thing where I... It was, it was around the time that Tomb Raider... I think Tomb Raider 2 maybe had come out. But basically, I was struck by the fact that Lara Croft shoots a lot of endangered species in those games. She's like gunning down tigers and any animal, anything with four legs, she just shoot it in the face. And uh, so I did this, I mocked up a, an advert for a zoo uh, called Lara Croft's Cruelty Zoo originally, where you, the idea was that you'd take the children there and they could kill and mutilate animals. <laughs> I don't know why this struck me as funny. Well, I do know why it struck me as funny because it's horrible. And I got the Argos catalogue and I scanned in all these pictures of kids playing with toys and replaced the toys with weapons and animals from Microsoft in Carter. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and painted blood everywhere. And so it's really quite horrific. And um, sat up all night doing this, really giggling a lot because yeah, it, I just sort of got on a roll with it and um, uh, emailed it to the magazine. And their only concern was that IDOS Interactive, who published Tomb Raider, might sue us <laughs> for the references to Lara Croft. So I took those out and changed it to this psychiatrist character that I'd made up called Dr. Hel Helmut Verstler. So when it... And then it ran in the magazine and it had no... Because without the satirical, <laughs> the, 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 the gossamer-thin layer of satire about Tomb Raider, it was, just, it was just a page of pictures of children killing animals. <laughs> you just <laughs> turned the page and it was there. <laughs> and it got, it got pulled off the shelves so quickly and they had to sort of issue an apology. Um, yeah, and at the time... It struck me as quite funny. I sort of think I found out later that the magazine nearly got closed down. So, 
yeah, it was, you could do that sort of, because no one was, again, no one was thinking. No one said, well, where did all these pictures come from? Did you scan them in from somewhere? Nobody considered that as a problem. <laughs> um, it was just that I'd drawn a cartoon of Lara Croft. I've got, um, to, I've got to ask, have you still got a copy of that? You know what? I don't. It is online somewhere. Right, I've got I've to check that it, down. Like somebody, <laughs> yeah, it, what, I, did, I did used to have it. I haven't got a physical copy of the of the magazine, but I think that particular page, somebody has got it somewhere. It'll be the thumbnail for this uh, episode. <laughs> it's, really, I mean, it's really horrible. <laughs> Get this pulled off iTunes. <laughs> and I've just explained where I got all that copyright material from now as well. I think now, actually, it would be fine under some kind of parody law. <laughs> well, you mentioned Edge as well. You've got to tell us about the Edge advert then. What happened there? Oh, that was flipping... That was just stupid. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, I did a comic strip for the Computer Exchange, which was incredibly violent, just like out of order, and actually also involved an animal being shot. That's quite a theme here. <laughs> there, was a, there was a sort of cute cartoon character shows up and says he's going to replace the main character, and it ends with the main with Toby, who is the sort of mascot, shooting this dog, and. This ran in a couple of... Ma- it ran in, like, CNVG, I think, and a couple of magazines like that. And then Edge refused to run it. I got in a bit of trouble because I think the computer exchange had paid for the space and they didn't... It was, you know... it to be And now they shouldn't have run it. It was clearly contravenes any advertising laws. Like, it shouldn't, shouldn't have been in the magazine. But I was so incensed by this that I then did... We used to do this sort of prank call thing for PC Zone. And I did. A, I ended up doing a prank call to the then editor of Edge. Uh, it was totally. I think I did apologise years later. It was really stupid. But weirdly, doing the prank calls, which was the thing I did for a PC Zone article, led to me getting a job on Radio One, doing a weekly technology show. First of all, I was, I was brought on board as a weekly reporter for this little sort of fifteen-minute show called the um, the Digital Update. What, you, what year was that then? This was like 97, I want to say, something like that, around 97-ish. So I started doing, uh, so I was doing this radio show, and then that, they did a, so they wanted to do a, a TV version of it, which I ended up co-presenting um, with uh, a woman called Gia Milinovic. And so we did a sort of, it was a tech, it was on what is, what is now BBC4, but was then called BBC Knowledge, when it first, one of those terrible BBC names for a, like, might as well call it BBC Spinach or something, <laughs> or like BBC Don't Bother. And that, and we, we would do little games bits on that show. But that was like my first TV presenting job, if you see what I mean. So all these things, I've had a sort of lucky series of accidents um, throughout my career. Yeah, so so how did I get onto that? So so yeah, so I was doing sort of radio stuff and then and then TV stuff and that that all kind of glommed together at the same time. And it was because of that that I sort of through doing that I ended up doing a website. I did a website. I'd started doing a sort of comedy thing, which was a spoof of the Radio Times. That led to me getting sort of TV comedy writing gigs, which led to me getting a, a job at the Guardian, right, to reviewing TV shows. And so from that point on, I was sort of I'd sort of morphed from games and technology into sort of TV and comedy, if you see what I mean. And it took, it was quite a while until I ended up doing a a games-based show after that. 
So obviously you kind of said there that there was a few kind of happy accidents where you kind of fell into roles. You were a pundit on Games Republic on Sky. How did you end up getting that that one out, hadn't I? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Now, when did that... That was very odd. Mm. I was just asked on. I remember it... I can you could date it because it was the day of an eclipse. There was a solar eclipse. I think it was all shot in one day in like like somewhere near Putney. There was a, a little TV studio. No, it was in Wandsworth. There's a TV studio. There used to be a TV studio there. And I, I can't remember how I ended up doing that. Games Republic with Trevor and Simon. My job was to come on and commentate over while people were playing games, games master style. What a hypocrite. Having just said to you <laughs> minutes ago, I didn't really. Yeah, wave a banknote in front of my face, and I was I was dressed as like a pharaoh or something. I, I, like Ravi's I just know. had the pictures up on the computer screen. Yeah, it, it was Egyptian themed. Yeah, yeah, it had for some reason it had an Egyptian theme. My memory of it is that I was commentating on games, many of which I didn't really know what I was talking about. God, but it, because it all happened, I, I seem to remember it was one day. Maybe it was two. And then I assume we probably filmed about 50 episodes or something in one. So in my head, it was one afternoon. And I remember there was a solar eclipse at one point and everyone stopped to go outside for a look at the solar eclipse. Unless that was an omen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, that was odd. I'd forgotten about that. Thanks for reminding me. You're listening to the Retro Hour episode number 200. We are talking to the legendary Charlie Brooker. Now, we'll get back to the interview in just a moment, but we did want to take a second to give a big thank you to another big supporter of the Retro Hour podcast, and that is our friends at Harry's. Now, Harry's are incredible. Looking around the table at the moment, you guys have got some pretty rocking facial hair. I've always been a bit, you know, baby smooth. You're the baby smooth one. You're the one who actually benefits from this quite a bit, actually. <laughs> I, I still need to do the edges. Exactly, I was going to yeah. say, I'm just the scruffy one who <laughs> just lets it grow out. <laughs> but, I mean, we really appreciate Harry's because they're an incredible company. This is uh, two guys, Jeff and Andy. Now, they, I think, you know, we can all relate to this. Two ordinary guys who are fed up with overpriced razors. Mm. You know, it's like, usually, you get a razor, then the blades cost more than the razor itself. Yeah, absolutely. So they started Harry's to essentially fix shaving. And they knew there's only one way to ensure quality, and that is they actually bought their own factory. Now, the idea behind Harry's is they take less profit, and by doing that, they offer great quality products for a fair price. Now, these are amazing quality blades that are almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Now, I've been using Harry's products over the last couple of months now. Yeah. And I've got to say, I mean, I used an electric razor before, mm. and I'm completely converted. It's like, I've never had such a smooth shave. It's like, yeah, yeah. It is, you know, you, I just get at the end of the day, about like 4 or 5 p.m., and I get itchy all day. And yeah. There's none of that going on anymore. It's like, and, and the razor just feels lovely in your hand, and having the shaving gel that they supply, so you know mm. you're putting good stuff on your skin, which, you know, obviously is really important. Now, what we want to do is we want you to start shaving with Harry's today and give you a trial set for just £3.95. So if you want to support the Retro Hour podcast and get your trial set delivered to you, including a razor handle, a five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and a travel blade cover, useful if you're going to be travelling over Christmas, all you've got to do is nip onto their website right now, harrys.com forward slash retro. So that's harrys.com forward slash retro and get started shaving with Harry's today. And right now, let's get back to this week's guest, the incredible Charlie Brooker. Nowadays, we don't really get much gaming TV. No. And it was great to see Gameswipe coming out, and uh, I actually heard it outperform Newswipe. Was it hard to convince people to actually commission such a show or to put it on? 
So that was, when was that? That must have been now, that must have been about 2008? Yeah, over a decade ago now, yeah. God, Jesus. Time, eh? Um, yeah, 11 years ago. That, so, is, that is retro in itself now. It is. God, that is a thought. Um, it was, uh, we had always intended, we kept intending in Screenwipe to cover video games. I kept saying, oh, one week, I'm just going to do, instead of reviewing TV shows, I'm just going to do games one week. And I think there was a bit of nervousness about it. And then I think, I can't now remember, but I think it may have been part of the season that they were doing on BBC Four. You had to sort of wait, a bit like a frog waiting, I'm going to use a video game analogy, a bit like waiting at the side of the river in Frogger for a long log to come along. You had to wait for a season to come along that had a sort of technology theme or some sort of leisure theme before they would allow you (laughs) to do something about games. And you do have to spend a lot of time explaining to people that Games aren't for kids. And, you know, all this stuff, all these conversations that you thought had died out years ago that, you you know, it, that, that's sort of quite frustrating. And I remember we said, but they gave us the go ahead and it was about 45 minutes. It was longer than a usual thing. It was like a one-off special. And the other slightly frustrating thing is that I've done two sort of very video game centric factual entertainment shows. You could say game, I did Games Wipe and I did, which was 20, 2008. And then How Video Games Changed the World, which was years later for channel four and in both of them you kind of feel the need to have to explain what games are to people because so few games shows like on tv which is very odd because you know everyone working on the show was basically into games our director al campbell who plays barry shitpies as well <laughs> um is massively into games like hugely into get like it was also it was just it was very frustrating. So we did a one-off, and then the thought was that we were going to... I did wonder, I did think, I don't think I'd be the right person to present that on a regular basis because I sort of felt that should be somebody else, like younger or like more than one person, but that you could use the same format and the same tone and the same style, but they didn't seem that interested in it. I guess... Being BBC Four, they had to commission a lot of documentaries about the clash, mm. um, <laughs> or something like that. They had to just do a lot of retrospectives, things about Spandau Ballet and tapestry, uh, and there wasn't room for computer games. I always wonder, uh, you know, that that interview scene in Nathan Barley. I always wondered, like, how much of that came out of these commission meetings that you went on? Which what? Oh God, <laughs> do you mean the one where Dan Ashcroft goes to? to the newspaper yeah. and doesn't know anything. Um, he becomes a wine critic or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My, or the paps. I do remember, no, I do remember, because the thing is, I think that there's a thing generally where I don't know that broadcasters, and of course now they've totally missed the boat, because now they're all, I think, bewildered by the fact that kids watch Dan TDM playing Minecraft, you know, for hours. You know, and I think that, that you know, the BBC should be doing that. The BBC should have channels for people of all ages because it's basically it took me a while to understand what that was about it's basically radio that you're watching it for the personality um my kids are massively into like that but huge dan tdm fans and fgtv and all of that sort of stuff so i see a lot of that stuff and to start with i was a grumpy old man about it and then i sort of sat down and watched it and thought oh i'm getting quite sucked into this actually (laughs) (laughs) um and i so i think that 
for a broadcaster, it's hard. To, they just sort of, it's very odd. But I do think there is a, games have always, my theory about the, the slight disconnect between why, there's a, why gaming still feels like it's a subculture, even though it's not. Do you know what I mean? It's because there's a common sort of language of games, and I don't just mean in the terminology, I mean in terms of the devices and the mechanics of how games work. There's a language that we've all learnt, we all know, we picked it up from childhood and we've been doing it for years. And if you haven't been doing any of that stuff, it's a huge barrier to entry. And so my theory is that, you know the language Esperanto? Yes. Like, like it's like we've all learnt Esperanto and we know there's all these films in Esperanto that are brilliant. <laughs> and But trying to persuade anyone to, to sort of run it on their channel, they're scared that, they, they just think that there's a significant portion of the audience who won't get it. Yeah. I, I think that's a really, I think that's short-sighted in generational terms, but I don't know, you just have to wait for people my age and a little bit younger to die. <laughs> <laughs> and then it probably changed, by which point TV won't exist anyway in any form we recognise. Well, one so. thing I kind of loved was about, um, how, you know, the How Video Games Changed the World documentary was that you had, like, these normal people like Jonathan Ross talking yes. about video games. Well, yeah. If you think Jonathan Ross is normal, you are. F- <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, but he's a proper games fan. Do you know what I mean? He's properly into his games. Like, he knows, he could tell you what a PC engine is. You know, he knows all of that sort of stuff. You know, he's like a Japano file, is that the word? Like, like you know, he's sort of hugely into um, retro games, you know, back when they weren't retro, um, and quite obscure things. And Dara, you know, you've got Dara O'Brien as well, who's hugely into it. And then we had people like Tom Watson, like, who's the deputy you know, deputy Labour leader who's massively into his games. And um, yes, we had people who were not... Susan Kalman shows up in it. You know, people who you don't think of as gamesy people. It, it almost seemed to me like you were outing closet video game fans. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit like that. It was a bit like that, I suppose. It was, But again, it was like... There's no reason why that, that... That's as much a part of people's memories and lives as... You know, it was around the same time. And the reason they went ahead and did that was they'd done lots of list shows about, you know, top 100 movie villains and this, that, and the other. And at the time, I was in Channel 4's Good Books for doing, I think I was doing 10 O'Clock Live at the time. And um, so I just suggested it. I just said, look, you've done all these list shows. Why don't you, it's, you should really do one about video games. And they took a gamble on it. And I don't know that it paid off in terms of people. <laughs> I don't think many people watched it. But... Again, in that, we were explaining what games were. I have to clear one thing up about that. I still see people complaining that we put Twitter at number one mm. in that. But it wasn't, it wasn't in order of importance <laughs> or merit. It was basically in chronological order we were, we were, making that, we were doing that list. And we deliberately wanted to end with the thought that we were moving into an era where things we don't consider games are drawing on the mechanics and law of video games in general. And I think I stand by that. I'd say that now it's more apparent that social media is a video game, is a is a role-playing game 
And, um, and to be fair, even if you put like a traditional game at number one, you still would have annoyed a load of people. Oh, God, yeah. You, we were going to annoy people. We yeah. annoyed people by not putting in... There were loads of things. I can't... Did we not even mention Final Fantasy or something like that? You know, there were like glaring, huge uh, errors or omissions because you can't really sum up. We were sort of picking... We were trying to pick kind of one thing from each genre. And maybe it was Zelda. Maybe we just didn't mention Zelda. You know, so we sort of just covered... Super Mario Brothers one, basically, and that would be it, and that was that was sort of it for platform games. But it was it was it was interesting to do, and it was fun to do. It was fun to do something that was a very mainstream format, as you say. It had lots of celebrities in it. It had a real mix of people. It was hopefully not off-putting to the average casual viewer, and it was hopefully also sort of hardcore enough. You know, because we we were we were talking about it. We did a whole little bit on indie games. We had little bits of trivia in there that you might not have otherwise known. Afterwards, they showed Indie Game the Movie on Channel Four, which was which was which was a great thing to show. But I, it was it was what was frustrating was they were going to show King of Kong, but they couldn't get the they couldn't secure the rights at the last minute or something like that. It was going to be King of Kong. It was going to go out immediately after it, and so it was it was it was fun to do something that was that familiar a format like Saturday night list show which at the time when every other show was a list show although now they do list shows about biscuits don't they yeah, chocolate bars and crisps <laughs> yeah so have they not done another games one I've, I've not seen one since yours I've not, not seen one since yours channel five need to get on that yeah, <laughs> yeah they do I was guilty of uh they'll be giving you a call probably next week now. <laughs> well have they done like the top 100 youtubers yet I mean that can't be far away no, no, they haven't done that either yet, have they? No. They have that, that weird uh, YouTube show, that don't they? Will but, yeah. Definitely happen. That will definitely happen. Mm. So it was interesting. Uh... And it will be shit. <laughs> it might not be it might not be anyway sorry go on it was very interesting to hear your thoughts on the number one there because I'm guilty of actually I did I watched it when it first broadcast with my mum and I oh. came in halfway through it so I was actually ah. one of the, I got misinterpreted what it was on my first viewing and I was like why is that number one and had to go well, back and rewatch it so that kind of uh, that was kind of nice to hear that but our next question was uh, are you surprised at how big the video games industry has become recently no, because it's often better than TV. You know, I, don't, I, th- I think that now, if you look at the variety of games that there are, you know, from Candy Crush up to flipping, I don't know, Beat Saber, um, you know, uh, and everything in between, it's a bit of a no-brainer that it's, that it, you know, there's so much creativity, there's so many experiences you can get there that you can't get elsewhere. It's very portable, you can take, you know, it's, it's interesting that we're at a point where, you know, you've now got sort of stuff you can really submerge yourself in, can't you? Like whole, you know, it's not, you can binge watch 10 hours of a show and then sort of engulf yourself with, I mean, I find it, I do find it hard to find time to play games. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like I say, especially because I'm spending so much time trying to emulate them. Um, no, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, we when we did we did as we did. I mean, I guess the most when we in Black Mirror, we've quite often had video game influences front and center. We did an episode in our third season, which was our first Netflix season, called Playtest, which was. To basically, you know, inspired by Resident Evil, mm-hmm. um, 
San Junipero, which was an episode we did in the third season, which is like appears to be set in the 1980s, and then to spoil it for people who haven't seen it, it turns out that's not. It's a virtual reality simulation for old people. But the inspiration for that was um, I'd watched a documentary about immersion nostalgia therapy for people with Alzheimer's, and then I was thinking about games like Grand Theft Auto Vice City. And so the world that they're in, in San Junipero, is basically a, a GTA-type fantasy mm. heightened nostalgia world. So quite often we'll use, you know, the, the old Striking Vipers, which was one we did in a, the most recent season, which had an overt video gaming theme <laughs> in it. And, um, and Bandersnatch, obviously, which was, which was a game. You know, and it, it was interesting to me how that was just accepted as, you know, whether people liked it or disliked it, nobody said that's not a Black Mirror story, if you see what I mean. So yeah. it, it, it was interesting. It was very instructive to us that we thought, okay, so you, you can do things now that are literally that is a game running on the Netflix platform, <laughs> basically, rather than running on a PlayStation or a phone or whatever. And we tricked a lot of people who wouldn't normally play anything like that into playing it because they didn't know, like millions of people didn't know going in that that was a, basically a game. Yeah, I've got friends that are not into video games at all but love that and must have played it through like really? you know, 10 times, yeah. Ah, that's, you see, that's very good to know. It's interesting that, obviously, because, uh, you know, like I know the thing that we, there was a, I get uh, annoyed by something that we couldn't make work in it um and i and couldn't wait make work from a from a narrative point of view well no it was more it was basically the whole thing was originally structured much more like an escape room and there was a central puzzle you had to work out but it turned out when we were and we'd after we'd filmed it once we'd edited it and put it together people couldn't <laughs> couldn't solve this problem <laughs> and were stuck so we had to sort of remove that bit simplify it and put it down one wing it's like the one there's one branch of the story where you have to enter a phone number and that's a massively simplified version of this very central puzzle where the idea was that you would you would always come to a point where Stefan, the main character, has to phone his psychiatrist and you don't know the phone number and you you fail, basically. And the idea was that you'd go, well, how the, I don't even know what the number, I've got no way of possibly knowing what it is. And then we keep showing you these little previously on things every time you fail and you get dropped back into the story. And the idea was that after two of those, you'd realise it was it was shortened down to the point that there were the numbers you had to dial were hidden in the dialogue. Cut a long story short, turned out people can't remember a five-digit number for more than 15 <laughs> seconds. Well, you know, when watching that show as well, the attention to detail was incredible. I love the fact that it was set in the 80s in that kind of boom of the British early video games industry, yeah. the, the home bedroom coders, and even that scene when you had WH Smith with the old logo yes. and the shop layout. <laughs> I mean, where did kind of the story idea come from then? Why did you decide to set it in that era? Well, it was twofold. One, I had always wanted to, to do an episode about the early days of gaming. And I didn't know quite... Uh, at one point, I wanted to do a, a story, uh, you know, because I sometimes kick around very vague ideas. And it was like, I want to do something about a, a computer game that comes out and people discover there was something hidden in it, like a... You know, and then you think, oh, that sounds a bit... That's too, a bit too much like the plot of Utopia, or something like that. I wanted to do this thing about a sort of rare old game that is found, and it is, it is discovered that years ago the programmer uh, hid something in the code. 
and that somebody somebody who in the present day is running it on an emulator sort of is looking through the uh, the code and finds something. But I couldn't really work out what that was. And then Netflix came to us and said, do you want to do a, an interactive episode? And to miss myself and Annabelle Jones, who's co-showrunner, and we went, that's very interesting. And then we walked out of the room and went, no f***ing way. <laughs> uh, are we doing that? Because it will be complicated. And then I had a story idea that made sense to do as an interactive about, because I wanted to, I, it was like, oh, well, what if we did a time travel story and there's somebody from the future starts controlling somebody in the past and they realize that they're being controlled, but everyone they try and tell thinks they're crazy because they sound like a crazy person saying someone in the future is controlling my thoughts. That was the loose sort of idea. And then I suddenly thought, oh, this could be interactive. Okay. Oh, and what if he's a programmer and he gets messages through his computer? Oh, and let's, so we're not like copying, because we did San Junipero, that was set in a glossy American version of the 80s. Let's set it in early 80s, very much Britain and the days of the bedroom coders and make it kind of a tribute to that era. And the, another thing that was interesting <laughs> was that in writing it, because I had to sort of learn twine, uh, which was a bit like HTML, to write the story, I started going a bit mad in pretty much the same way the character does. <laughs> because it kept, it kept, I kept having to send emails to Annabelle going, I'm sorry about this, but the story has grown sideways <laughs> um, where I just keep adding huge branches and it became very sprawling and very complicated and the whole thing was like fascinating to work on something like that and a real learning curve for everyone involved at every stage of the production um what it means to be doing something like that you know because this is all people who hadn't made a game before um but we brought well there's a lot of attention to detail did you notice jeff minter yes <laughs> yeah that, so that was we, our next question <laughs> <laughs> so jeff minter we got jeff minter in to be to play jerome f davis and that was funny because I remember because I don't because I don't quite know how um, you know the spectrum coding works. So I asked him, "Well, what would?" And he said, "Well, you'd I can't remember what he said. Oh, well, you'd write that if you're writing for a spectrum, you'd actually be writing it on a TRS-80. I mean, like in our episode, Stefan is programming in BASIC, which <laughs> which he wouldn't really do. But we we needed something that didn't just look like numbers. But no, yeah. So Jeff Minter's in it. There's Lots and lots of sort of references to, well, you see things like sort of Jet Set Willy posters and Chucky Egg is in there and things like that. You see a couple of games that we created for it. So there's a game based on Metalhead and there's a game based called Nosedive, which then became a playable, which we then had made into a playable version of itself. Originally, it was a graphics guy just mocked up these things, and I'd get them back, and I'd sort of send it. I'd, I'd say, "This is good, but it needs to look authentically like it's running on a Spectrum. It needs terrible color clash, <laughs> and it all needs to flicker." <laughs> and I'd sort of send all these reference videos off YouTube, and then we had to reverse engineer the actual game because we put it in as an Easter egg as well that you can find. But um, yeah, it was. I don't know, and I, I was very proud, I have to say, of the fact that this went up globally and that, you know, we could have, you would have thought that the first sort of big sort of adult interactive drama that Netflix were doing, 
it could have been like a James Bond thriller or yeah. something like that. It could have been very glossy and very, very mainstream. And we, and we inflicted on the world sort of Croydon, <laughs> 1980s, like, like people type, tapping away on a spectrum. And I, I imagine a lot of most people looking at that, A, because they're too young to remember it or even care about it or, what, or don't know about it. And also if they're American or whatever, they probably don't realise all those computers are real. And all that stuff is a, an accurate reflection of what those games looked like and the sort of things that those people went through, I think. Because it was so the main character is kind of amalgam, an amalgamation of he's, you know, he's like almost every sort of tortured young artist. Mm. And also, you know, obviously I was thinking of there's, you know, programmers you hear things about or whatever, you know, or, or like the sort of pressures that people were under in that sort of gold rush period where suddenly you had very young people making a huge amount of money overnight with something that a lot of people didn't understand. Well, um, even the name itself, Bandersnatch, I mean, that kind of reminded me of, you know, that commercial yeah. breaks documentary. That was, imagine software's mega game, wasn't it? It was. Well, it was deliberately, it was that. And I, sort of, I quite liked the thought that it was, it was a game I remembered from my youth as being advertised and everyone's saying this is going to be the most advanced thing ever, and then it never came out. Now, the, the Commercial Breaks documentary, I didn't actually watch it again, but, but I know um, David Slade, the director, did, and all the designers and everybody did, and the cast did. I gave, we sent them, we got them to watch From Bedrooms to Billions as well. Um, so they watched that. I know Will Poulter was basing his sort of accent on about four different people at once. Colin Rittman character, the Colin Rittman character is played by Will Poulter, who's, who's the sort of genius programmer who Stefan, the main character, looks up to. He was originally actually based on a, he was meant to be a bit more of a Jeff Minter hippie type. Um, and he was sort of originally written as more of a hippie. And he was described in the original script as having long hair and looking a bit like Neil from The Young Ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but Will Poulter had very short hair. And we thought, actually, it's a bit more interesting. We'll give him a sort of post-punk look that's, again, a bit Rick from The Young Ones. He dresses a bit like Rick from The Young Ones in it deliberately. So there's all these nice little sort of esoteric British references to things. And I was very pleased that I, I, I don't always go to set, but we shot most of it in Ealing Studios. But we did build a, a replica WH Smith in Croydon. And that, that was a funny day, was uh, walking into that. That really was a time warp with Chucky Egg and all the other, we'd sort of made up a load of other games. That was fun as well, making up the games. Yes, that was a real trip down memory lane. Was Bandersnatch full of Easter eggs? And was there any in particular that you thought people wouldn't be able to find for a while and were surprised how quickly they were found? Oh, yeah. Well, maybe the, some haven't been found yet. Maybe some haven't <laughs> well, been found yet. No, there's none. Well, there's a, there's a section you can't actually get to, uh, <laughs> which is because we because we were having to... It, uh, we had to go through lots and lots of different iterations. We had to simplify lots and lots of things. Because originally, you know, I wanted it to have unlock achievements for the viewer. Mm. Like when you got to a particular ending, it would unlock achievements for you and things like this. Um, and um, oh, by the way, I had to give them feedback on how much the PlayStation and Xbox controllers should vibrate when you come to a choice point. <laughs> so it, it gets the, the vibrations get stronger when it's a, when it's a particularly tense moment and it was that was fun giving them a reference i said like get 
Forza Horizon 4, or whatever it was, whatever the new one was, and drive over gravel, and it should feel <laughs> like that. And th- then um, it would rattle on the coffee table, and you'd be like, <laughs> Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I think the best way to play it was with a TV remote. If your TV can... Because that, that feels the most magical, because that's not a gaming platform. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's my preferred platform. So if you, if you get enough of the i can't remember exactly what it is that unlocks it even but once you've seen a certain amount of stuff we unlock a sort of post credits scene where stefan gets on the bus and he puts a cassette in and it loads and there's a spectrum code and if you load that into an emulator it would generate a qr code on the screen and if you followed that qr code it would take you to a bespoke bit of this website we'd set up where you could download Colin Rittman's nosedive game to run on a spectrum. Oh, wow. Um, and we thought people aren't going to find that ever. <laughs> <laughs> and within about three hours or something. <laughs> some of the so, so it's, and what's interesting, because I wanted that to keep going. So I wanted it to generate a QR code and it takes you to somewhere else and then if you play the game, you get a th- you get something, and you realise it's coordinates, <laughs> and you go somewhere. It's a bit like geocaching or something, and you go somewhere. Like I just wanted to sort of keep this wild goose chase going, but eventually everyone was too knackered. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, but yes, there's that. That's that. And also, I, I wanted a bit where at one point he puts a videotape in and watches a documentary, and I wanted it to put in a bit where he had a choice of videotapes you can watch. And it's that or a film he's taped off the telly. And if you choose the film, he literally sits there and watches a whole film in real time <laughs> with license. <laughs> um, complete with ad breaks from the 80s. That'd be awesome. That would have been fantastic. TV, which I really wish we'd done. Uh, and weirdly, I thought the other day, we should have, there's a bit where it breaks the fourth wall, which we unlocked. Here's a good, here's a weird thing I noticed. It was easier than we thought it was for people. We thought it was much hard. It was going to be much harder, the whole thing. And so there's a bit where you can tell him that you're watching him on Netflix. And mm. originally that was a sort of bonus that you got if you'd already completed it once, if you see what I mean. It yeah. would only unlock once you'd... But we were worried that people wouldn't even get that far. So we made it so that you could access it on your first sort of journey through. And annoyingly what that meant was, because it's quite a bananas fourth wall-breaking story more people actually took that than took the one you're meant meant to that, that's the route i took on my first try yeah mate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what so you got the you got the netflix yeah the, yeah which I, is fun i got the suicide of, it's, <laughs> it's the only tv show with um, a walkthrough and i was wondering if there were <laughs> kind of any endings uh, that you wanted to change or any any extra ideas you had Oh, loads, loads and loads and loads. Like, like, like I say, originally it had this much more, it was much clearer when you'd escaped, so to speak. So I think a valid criticism of it is that it, it's not entirely clear. It doesn't, it sort of dissipates, like you decide, or it sort of decides when you've seen enough and it rolls end credits after you've seen about five endings. But it, it, in the original setup, it had a very clear puzzle that came in that would, you could escape from but it just sort of wasn't people weren't comprehending it and also it was very hard to translate into foreign language as it turned out so so there was that there was um 
Oh God, there was loads. There was a couple of endings we had to cut completely. There was a whole section that was originally going to be in. There was a section that was like Horace goes skiing. <laughs> it was my little in joke, and that there was a bit where he runs across a road in the original. I was going to say draft, but in the original playthrough of it, like the original Twine thing, because the script I had to then translate into Twine as well, incidentally. And then it all got. They built this tool that we loaded. So actually, a lot of my original code sort of ends up in now in the Netflix platform. I got better at coding Twine as I went along. Um, but there was a bit where you had to run across a road, and if you go to do it, you'd go to do it, and you'd get hit by a car, and you'd die. So then you'd go back there, and you'd you'd wait. And then you'd get hit by a car coming from the other way. <laughs> and then, like, there was a third, there was a gag for the third time around, and, and so on and so forth. And it was meant to be a bit like the the, the opening stage of Horace goes skiing, where he has to run at speed across a road to get his skis. Um, a lot of the overall themes of uh, Black Mirror is distrust of technology. Is that something you think about a lot or worry about? Um, I. It, Mm, not really, because I worry about everything. So that's why it 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 really it came about. It it sometimes frustrates me, and I think it's you know it's our own fault that I think often the show is interpreted as like a warning about technology, and that's not really what it is. In any more than the haunting of Hill House is a warning about death. You know, it just happens to have ghosts in it. It's not anti-ghost. I don't think we're actually, the technology in our stories is usually actually very neutral. Mm. And they're more, it's more used as a, we use technology in the same way that other shows would use the supernatural to make weird and unusual and uncanny and terrifying things happen. It's usually the sort of horrible logical consequence of some, you know, gizmo or device in, in our episodes. But it's always a human failing that then causes the actual problem if you saw it to me mm. so because i'm very much into you couldn't do this job if you hated technology like i say so bandersnatch i had to you know i had to have played a lot of games um in order to even come close to working out roughly how that and i know that it annoys interactive fiction pioneers <laughs> who are like well this is dragon's lair uh, which it is you know it is dragon's lair i, I don't think i could have got as far as I did with it if I didn't sort of know quite a bit about games and code, you know, like rudimentary coding. Similarly, gen generally overall in the show, there's a lot of affection there, I think, is on display, certainly for games in general. You know, the, there's a lot of, if you look at something like Striking Vipers, we are closely observing Tekken Street Fighter uh, type games in that. Mm. And, and generally in the show overall, I think, because actually a lot of the job, probably, and maybe it, I, I don't know if, I don't know that people really know, uh, have a full understanding of what your job entails when you're, because me, myself and Annabelle, we're, so we co-show run the show. So I wrote, I write most of the scripts, but that's a very small part of the job because a huge part is simply making decisions <laughs> about a bewildering array of things. And often it's, it's to do with the look of an interface or the, feel of a game that people are using you know I, I hate it when you're watching a film or a tv show and somebody's using something that doesn't quite ring true you know like the e their email program is a bit too ostentatious or the the website doesn't look like a real website or the computer makes noises that it shouldn't make you know um 
that it would just be a waste of processing power. It kind of takes so, you out of it, doesn't it? It knocks yeah. me out of it. I don't know. I mean, I'm like that about typefaces as well. <laughs> when you see a character reading a newspaper, it drives me flipping mad if the typeface isn't quite right, which it never usually is. So, you know, a lot of the time, a lot of my job involves product design. I think it's very positive. And I expect, I mean, when I'm writing, what I do is I, so I'll be writing and I listen to, I'm often listening to video game soundtracks now. Like, because, you know, I'll be listening to something instrumental playing because I can't listen to anything with lyrics while I'm writing. So I'll be listening to something pulsing away and then I'll take breaks every so often and I'll go off and I'll play like a PlayStation game or I'll increasingly what I'm doing is like setting up launch box and trying to flip in, you know, get lots. It really does annoy me, actually, that we we name checked RetroArch in Bandersnatch, but we the, there was a typo. <laughs> <laughs> in the line, and it said something. It called RetroArch an emulator, which it isn't, is it? It's like a sort of front end for. It's like a sort of wrapper library of emulators, like a menu it? system. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm. Um, uh, so I spend a lot of time dweebing about that sort of thing. I actually heard an advert the other day for um, a Whitney Houston hologram tour that they're going to be doing. Yeah. And I instantly thought of the the Miley Cyrus episode. It's yeah. Like, it's coming oh, true. God. Well, that was, I mean, that's a good example of there, the, the, the design of the robot thing there. It's deceptively very simple, mm. but it goes through so many iterations and you have so many conversations and, you know, and a lot of that stuff is extremely technical, you know, about what is it. it it's got to be the right level of, you know, in that episode, if you watch it, with an, it, it deliberately pauses and listens like an Alexa does all the time in a way that, that, and then there's a point in the story where its personality is unleashed and it's, it's like the full her brain in, in its head and it no longer pauses. And it's one of those things you wouldn't notice, I think, as a viewer, except you'd feel it on some level mm. that this thing has stopped sort of waiting before it responds. It's just blurting stuff out. So a lot of the time you're having to think about little design things but I mean I look at games and I'm sort of in awe of the amount of effort and I mean it must be and it's interesting that there's just a whole at the moment there seem to be so many games with a retro aesthetic yeah that are so the the games I've played most recently that I've really liked like Katana Zero it's like um it looks like a 16-bit ninja game but it's got this sort of it's a bit like Hotline Miami or something you 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 die a billion, billion times and you rewind it and try it again. Um, and so it's like really, but it, it's got the look and feel of a, a, a game from the 80s, even though it, it clearly very much isn't and w- would not have been possible. And then like something like Untitled Goose Game, yeah, <laughs> which is basically like a Spectrum game. I was tweeting about that the other day. It just reminds me of things like Jack the Nipper and School Days and Trash Man and Everyone's a Wally and all these like slightly quaint, weird little British games of the 80s to take us back to Bandersnatch. That feels like something that's refreshing and new. And people have gone, oh, isn't it great that you're just playing a naughty goose? <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually, it's almost exactly like, um, you know, in concept, it's very, very similar to quite a few of these sort of slightly quaint little Wizard and Chip style games of of the uh, of Britain in the 80s. I love that you kind of mentioned that you like had technology in films that you didn't really like sometimes uh, because I've always wanted to use the uh, Jurassic Park computer 
That was one that I really got into. <laughs> That, that was a real thing, apparently, that flying over thing. Yeah. We, oh, we yeah, yeah, the computer system looked great. Well, you um, know, and you know what it's like with games as well? You'd see games in things, and nine times out of ten, any game you see in any kind of, you know, unless they've licensed an actual game, and usually, often, usually, when they've licensed a game, even then, the character is not, is like holding the controller upside down or something. Or it's not <laughs> like, you know, because nobody knows quite how it works on the set, probably. Or they've just been, you know, more probably more more likely they've been handed a controller and they're just randomly hitting buttons uh, in front of a TV with nothing on it because they're going to comp it in afterwards. Or they're um, like, we're going to hack something and they press a button and all these screens come up. I've got a soft spot for that. <laughs> <laughs> bloody handy uh, in terms of uh, in terms of. Uh, moving the story on. Well, have you watched the, the movie Hackers? That watching that now is just hilarious. You know what? I've never seen Hackers. You should watch it. It's so I've funny now. I've Mister Robot, and he knows yeah. what he's doing, doesn't he? Like um, Sam Ismail, I think was a hacker, wasn't he, or something? Like, yeah. Um, he writes Mister Robot. Well, are there, um, are there any concepts or novels that you would? be interested in in the future i always thought um i don't know if you've read it only you can save mankind by terry pratchett i thought that would make a good concept i have not read that and i tend to i tend to wherever possible certainly now i tend to avoid reading if if like if somebody says to me oh you're there's this thing you should see or look at it's a bit black mirror i will then immediately avoid it (laughs) because partly because i will I, I will get incredible jealousy or I will think, well, I wouldn't have done it like that. And I'll get preoccupied with that, if you say it to me. So I think if I was reading something, well, also, I mean, I've got two young kids. The only things I have time to read anymore are like, you know, Mr. Man books. I <laughs> came to tea and uh, uh, things like that. My kids, my seven, our seven-year-old is, I mean, I thought I was into computer games. Bloody hell, mm. is he into computer games? Uh, and of course, he's in uh, like a kid in a candy shop because I've got, I've, I've got that. I've always bought every console that comes out because that's just a habit I got into. And so we're, our house is a bit like a museum of. Well, it's not the old. All the old consoles are up in the loft, but I've got like you know, all the, there's an old arcade cabinet, and there's I've got sort of lots of get. There's we've got every console, every current console, all the games for them, and like this, that, and the other. I'm just. <laughs> not a good parent. <laughs> the best parent in the world to him, probably. <laughs> oh no, he thinks it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. he he tells me lots of things about that because he's obsessed with Mario. So he's like constantly reading from the Mario Encyclopedia, you know that big like thirty anniversary, whatever mm. it was, book. He's constantly telling me things about Mario, and I had to break it to him that I didn't really play Mario games when I was growing up. <laughs> Heartbroken. I was too old for that. They did Well, they didn't... I, no one had a Nintendo when I was a kid. We had minor Willy on the spectrum. Well, Charlie, we couldn't have you on without trying to get a bit of, you know, exclusive news off you or something. I mean, okay. do you think there'll be, like, a, a follow-up to Bandersnatch or another kind of choose-your-own-adventure kind of episode? I would not say no. Um, I can't confirm or deny anything. I mean, while we were doing it, we kept saying we're never, ever going to do this again. This was a terrible mistake because it was so... Because it was you know, it was originally going to be just be part of season five. It was going to be one episode in a season. And as we were doing it, we realised it was exactly the same as doing a whole season. So we ended up 
separating the two things and having to put it out on its own. However, while we, as we got towards the end of the process, as I learned, and as we'd learned lots of things about what we could do, what we couldn't do, because it was the point of Bandersnatch as well was deliberately to be experimental and to test lots of different things out and to push Netflix's sort of tech team, you know, and they more than matched up to everything. Um, then, you know, they got it working seamlessly. Um, so by the time we got to the end of the process, rather like someone forgetting how agonizing childbirth is, <laughs> I was sort of going, well, maybe, uh, maybe we could, uh, I've had an idea for something. So there may well be, there's all sorts of narrative hoops that I think you have to jump through to make it work. It has to justify being interactive. There's no point in doing it for the sake of it. You know, there has to be something, even if it's uh, either a narrative hook that makes sense of the format or oh, I just said format and I hate it when people say that um, or, or the, you know, a really good excuse, like a very good gag or something like that. So um, I don't think there'll be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these things, but um, I would I would not rule myself out from doing one again. We'd love to play another one. Well, mainly this time there'll be a button that I kept. I mean, the whole way through doing Bandersnatch, my theme tune basically was, oh, God, if we were doing this on a PlayStation, (laughs) just choose what colour hat you wanted him to wear. Because it's all live action. This is taking forever. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, maybe we'll have those unlockable achievements next time. Maybe we'll do that. And uh, uh, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. Um, hmm. Well, recently on the BBC, you said you uh, listen to podcasts when you go to sleep, retro ones. Uh, which ones, which rival have, is it? Well, <laughs> I have listened to this very podcast. Oh, Not wow. this very one I'm on. That would be, <laughs> be weird. If I listen to myself, if I listen to my own voice while going to sleep, do you think my brain would loop around and strangle it? <laughs> um, There's a Black Mirror episode. There you go. Um, yes, I listen, so I listen to this. I listen to Retronauts. Oh, wicked! Yeah. Um, Hardcore Gaming 101. Um, and there's another one I've listened to a bit. There's a newer one called something like Retro Game Club. What I tend to do because I listen, and don't take it the wrong way, that I listen to podcasts and go to sleep. Because <laughs> then I'll sort of listen to the, I'll work out where I fell asleep, and I'll play the next bit the next night. Do you see what I mean? So I usually can stay awake for about 25 minutes. Brilliant for me because I used to be a massive insomniac. I know you mix that works for me as well. I think just having like listening to a conversation, you just kind of you kind of almost zone out and it becomes a bit like you, you know you're involved in it, but you're not really quite there. Then you just drift off. It's quite nice. Yes, yeah. and it helps. It's it's weird in that it helps if it's focused on a topic. Mm. I don't know why, but if it's if it's totally unfocused, just bibble about any old nonsense like I'm doing now (laughs) it's oddly I find it I'm sort of maybe on some level I'm slightly worried about where it's going to go but when it's all just about a topic uh so I'll also there's like podcasts I've listened to about various esoteric topics but gaming is a good one because I'm even if it's a game I don't know I'm quite interested in it on some level I think because it's something I like to I like to keep an interest in 
There's a great podcast called Sleep With Me, which is, is kind of like... Um, <laughs> I listened to that. It's good, I isn't it? I listened to that by Scooter. <laughs> yeah. Is he called Scooter? That was, the, that was, you see, weirdly, that was the one, because I'd had a... Years ago, I'd been trying to give up smoking, and I'd had a hypnosis CD for, like, somebody going, stop smoking, <laughs> close your eyes, don't think about cigarettes. Um, and, uh, and that used to knock me out like a flipping sedative. So... Um, I was looking for something like that and stumbled across um, Sleep With Me. And then I, that was sort of my gateway drug into lots of other podcasts. There's other ones I, I, I realise I can't listen to. I tried going to sleep listening to um, podcasts about serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't recommend. Not the best idea. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. The, I genuinely had awful nightmares. <laughs> well, Charlie, you know, we've, we've done 200 episodes of this show, and what a pleasure to have you on on our 200th episode. It's been such an interesting conversation. Congratulations. Well, do, uh, how, how are you going to do 200 more? I think we'll have to now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. By the time you get to another 200, then you'll be looking back on games that are, yeah, like games that are new. I still think of games, I still think of games that are from like about 2004 as new. Yeah. (laughs) Because I'm so old, I'm now buried in amber. But then I think that American Pie, you know the film American Pie? Yeah. Which I have never seen. It's you know one of the rapiest kind of films. If you ever <laughs> see it nowadays, it's uh, oh, just as well, very edgy. Um, no, because it's in my head, it's a new film that I don't want to see. <laughs> and, I've never seen it. and then I was walking down the street and there was a poster for American Pie, The Reunion. 20th year or something. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What, that new film? <laughs> um, Yeah, there's plenty more retro stuff to cover for us, I think. There you go, yes. Well, there's a (laughs) never-ending supply of it because there's more history coming out constantly as you move forward through time. History keeps trailing behind you like a long shit hanging off the bum of a goldfish. Um, There's the quote. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Charlie, thank you so much for coming on this week. We really enjoyed talking to you. My pleasure. 